elsewhere. My name is Ian Ditchburn. And I'm Cody Harridge. So, it's spooky season here Ooh. in the Great White North. And I'm, of course, talking about the Canadian election. Ba-dum-tsh. Yeah, we're actually recording this the day before the election, that of October 20th. And, uh, yeah, it's seeming like we have the choice between a fake progressive in blackface and an actual racist in uh, Cabbage Patch Doll clothes. <laughs> So you're feeling there's uh, no hope for Jagmeet Singh? I think that there's a lot of hope for him to form a coalition with Trudeau. That would be the kind of ideal situation from my perspective. Coalition with the liberals and then forcing them to enact proportionate representation, which is under campaign promises in 2016, 15. And, that didn't uh, happen. That did not happen, uh, along with a lot of uh, very unfortunate things that did happen. Some um, neat new pipelines. Some neat new pipelines, some broken promises, some broken dreams. Yep. 2019. Huzzah. Huzzah. <laughs> um, this month's guest is Javier Badillo. Yes. Uh, Javier is a filmmaker, a refugee from Venezuela, and the front man for the Latin punk group Caracas. So obviously a lot to unpack there. Uh, We're going to end the interview talking about his film because that's the most sort of recent thing that he's involved in, Mm -hmm. but I didn't want to abandon Schiff on all his formative experiences, so we spent a long part of the beginning interview talking about sort of how we grew up, his experiences in Venezuela, and how we came here. Nice. And uh, you two have uh, known each other quite, quite a bit before this, haven't you? Yeah, we met about maybe a year ago. I remember it was really shitty outside so i was probably about a year ago i mean that could be eight months yeah exactly you never really know but yeah i met him at a singer songwriter showcase where i was looking for music to feature on the show and originally i just thought okay maybe we'll play a couple of his songs but we actually ended up meeting up and i found out all of these things about him and we decided to turn it into a full episode we're going to play you in today with one of my favorite songs by Caracas off their album, Bring on the Playtime. This is Running. I hope you enjoy it.
record and uh, take okay. it away. Go at it. it. Yeah, there we go. We're good? Yeah, we're good. Live? Yeah. Javier! <laughs> Hello. Good to see you, man. Nice to see you, too. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. yeah of course. Uh, awesome. I know we changed the date around a few times, mm-hmm. so thank you for making the time yeah. to come in. Awesome. I had some uh, Thanksgiving plans, so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? No, it worked out for all of us. We had to all kind of plan it around our schedules and yeah, that's and always come together. That's always the way it goes, but... So you're a bit of a special case yeah. because you have so much going on. I'm not really sure where to start with you. So I thought we'd start with the night that we met. Sure. It was at the Avant Garden for like a local band showcase about like a year ago. And uh, your band, Caracas, was the, the last band to go on. And I was feeling really tired and I'd nearly left. So it's actually quite lucky that we did get the chance to meet. But yeah, you guys went on and I immediately decided that I was going to stay. Awesome, man. In large part due to your uh, your energy as a front man. If anyone hasn't seen Caracas, I would highly recommend going to check out a show because you you aren't afraid to jump into the crowd, awesome. suffice to say. I just remember you, huge smile on your face, just smacking a tambourine around. Yes. And uh, yeah, so my first question is, wh- where do you get all that energy? Uh, well, the, the music is something I've done since I was a child, like since I was a kid. And in the band is my brother. So my brother and I have been in the band forever and ever. I mean, maybe not in Caracas, but before Caracas, we were in another band. Mm-hmm. So it's been something that we've done since we were very young. Yeah. So the name Caracas is mm-hmm. obviously a reference to the capital of Venezuela, mm-hmm. which is your hometown, right? Yes. Yeah. So right. why do you feel it was so important to represent them with the name? Did you start Caracas after you'd come to Vancouver? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So when we got to Vancouver, um, the the situation in Venezuela was getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And so as as artists, we want to kind of help a cause that we believe strongly in. And, and you know, me loving Venezuela where I was born, um, I wanted to contribute in a way somehow. And uh, and music, is music and films. And so music is what I knew what to do. I said, well, this is a perfect opportunity to put the name of of the cause as <laughs> the name of the band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you remember about growing up there? Well, uh, it was great. Uh, you know, I- even in the 90s, it wasn't super safe, mm-hmm. right? And it was still, there was some economical crisis going on back then. But holy, we never knew how good we had it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but even back then, sure, there was uh, inflation. Sure, it was expensive. You know, sure, there was a lot of crime going on. But it was still safe enough that you could walk around, you know, whether you have to watch yourself. But it was, it was livable, you know. You could have a job. You can have, you go to school. You could have your friends hang out after school. You know, you could have your friends over. Um, and, you know, with precautions, you, you, you could buy well, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was um, just normal. Yeah, it was yeah. just normal. Big it cities. Normal. It felt normal, yeah. Yeah, yeah. in a big city, you, you're used to watching your back anyway, right? Yeah. Um, you know, fast forward 15, 20 years in, here in Vancouver, and the situation has degraded to the instability that is right now. I mean, you can't do what I used to do back then, you know? And, and uh, kids that are, the, the, if you're 20 years old, you've never seen Venezuela the way I saw it, where it was mm. relatively safe, you know? Uh, when is, uh, when is the last time you, you were home? Oh, man. Uh, uh, man, let's see here. Uh, seven years, maybe? Oh, wow. Seven years ago, yes. Yeah. I, I visited there uh, to see my old friends and see my, my mom and dad and my family. But a lot of them had left or were in the process of leaving. And the streets had the same names, but it, they didn't look the same way, you know? Yeah. Garbage in every corner and, and, and not a lot of people out in the streets unless you really had to go to work or you really had to 
be somewhere if you're lucky enough to have a job if you're lucky enough to yeah, have right, a job yeah. still exactly yeah. so i mean it was just so different that i should have heard advice i mean my, my my family told me it's nothing like what you remember man it's not even worth coming up and it's it's still part of my in my heart so i needed to go see it for myself right mm-hmm. yeah i was looking up some stats uh before we do our, our interview today and three million people have left since 2013 uh, which is essentially the population of Caracas, the yes. capital, so no insignificant amount. And inflation is set to reach 10 million percent, which I, I, I'm not insane. an economist, so, yeah. but that sounds <laughs> incredibly insane. bad. It's yeah, yeah, I saw a documentary, a BBC documentary, where kids are literally just playing with money in the street, just mm-hmm. throwing it around because it's, like it's entire stacks nothing. of bills yeah. you can't even buy a loaf of bread. That's right. With, it's, yeah. it's completely worthless. Now mm-hmm. people are using U.S. dollars, even though if it's illegal, um, uh, people use U.S. dollars because it's the only thing that carries any weight in terms of right. acquisition yeah. so, uh, power. But uh, anyway, so, so it's, it's a dire situation right now. And um, we brought my mom and dad um, not too long ago, a few months ago, Canada. And uh, my brother and I live here, so we sponsored them to get out of there. Oh, um, that's great. As most of my cousins have done, those who live outside and those who haven't done yet uh, that they can still send a bit of money through you know um, what do you call this uh, e-transfer or whatever yeah, you know yeah. uh, so that they can survive down there because otherwise you you're in trouble you got to get out of there you yeah. to find a place uh, maybe Colombia or Brazil where you can actually get a job and and, and you know make a living for yourself mm-hmm. yeah yeah back to your childhood a little yeah. bit back to the good times yeah. so I, I really because <laughs> everything that I've heard about Venezuela was yes it was under you know Hugo Chavez mm-hmm. and a very sort of a, authoritarian mm-hmm. situation going on down, down there but because of the oil money from mm-hmm. what I from what my dad has told me and yeah. other people like before in the 90s there was still like a lot of opportunity a lot of good schools mm-hmm. uh, and you left in 2002 was mm-hmm. it? No before that oh before that yeah. Yeah. so I'm, I'm wondering what, what year was it just 99. to get Nine, yeah, I was out. Yeah, I was out before yeah. 2000. Yeah. So I'm wondering, what was your situation that inspired you to leave before it even got as bad as it? Bad as it? Did you like see the writing on the wall? Uh, yeah, uh, the the well, the situation in Venezuela was already pretty bad back then, and, and obviously getting a better opportunity elsewhere was already written on the wall, like mm-hmm. you say. Yeah. Um, I just never expected it to be as bad as it became. Right? I didn't see it coming i mean a lot of people did but uh, you maybe had to be better informed than i was you know i just thought things as as a a teenager would right um uh, playing in bands and like yeah you kind of see the situation of the country but you it's hard to see 10 years ahead you know so so it's 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 interesting to to have left at that time you know in the 90s um because it gave me the, the the context you know after years after i could see the difference basically of what it had become just a drastic contrast exactly yeah. it, it, and the people that remained a lot of them it, it felt a bit like that uh, analogy of the the frog in the boiling pot you know where you put a frog in a pot and then you just raise the temperature slowly up you know and the frog is like i'm okay it's, it's just a little warmer than normal you know it keeps raising and raising until it's too late it's boiling and the frog has you know yeah. died yeah. Um, sort of like that in the sense that it was as kind of a slow increase and now it's just exponential right yeah. um, but um, I mean you know growing up in Caracas was okay like I said like I mean I, it wasn't it was it was still rough it was still dangerous but but heck I remember I had a decent uh, you know 
decent, decent upbringing, you know, uh, middle class, and it was okay. You could survive. Your parents could had jobs, and um, you know, you you could hang out with your friends uh, in the street. You could play in the street. So you could go. Um, there was ice cream, uh, little uh, you know, the ice cream man with the little push trolley thing that would go around the block. Right. You know, you would play with the neighborhood kids. You know, my neighbors would would uh, would have musicians, and so we'd go to the neighbor's house to play music. Uh, the kids from down the block were good in skateboarding, so we'd go go skateboard around the block. You yeah. know, my grandma's house. Um, so you know, it was it was good. It was um, livable. You know, mm-hmm. um, good memories from those times, from you know, eighties and, and and early nineties. It's just afterwards yeah. that it started to decline, right? Yeah. W- when did you know that you first wanted to be a musician? I don't know if I ever knew that. <laughs> I think it was one of those things that, you know, you grow up around musicians and then you kind of like, okay, yeah, well, I know how to play this. I know how to play a guitar. I know how to play a cuatro. And, and then you kind of play with your friends and it's like, hey, this is fun. I want to keep this up, you know? Yeah. And then uh, you kind of never stop. It's, it's, uh, it's one of those things that, like um, kids, you know, children are always artists, right? They're always drawing. They're always playing stuff. They're always, uh, you know, they're always expressing themselves. And then as they get older, responsibilities come, and then they, the kids kind of slow down from their creative endeavors because now they gotta focus, right? Yeah. They gotta be a, make a living or whatever. There's um, no time for finger painting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no time for finger painting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, essentially, uh, my brother and I, because we were both musicians, both in bands since we were kids, we kind of kept it up as as we got older, and uh, and we kind of fed off of the energy. You know, we kind of um, uh, learned how to how to balance it with life you know having a job or or, or you know uh, paying rent and, yeah. and getting mm-hmm. all that right the, the so classic musician struggles that's it that's the it. <laughs> ever-present rent yes exactly yeah. you know at, when you're young and you're living with your parents it's still okay because you know you're, you don't have to pay rent right so you can actually um you know be every day at a gig if you want you know play gigs every day if you want to right um, eventually, you kind of have to learn how to balance the two, right? Between uh, not living with your parents anymore and and uh, and keeping up your music and and your passions, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm curious as to what your access to music from the outside world was like. Could you hear American radio stations from Venezuela? Because yeah. it's quite oh, yeah. close. Relatively yeah, it's quite speaking. close. Totally culturally speaking and and and, and distance wise as well, it's quite close. So you know we were we were quite familiar with uh, '90s music, you know um, Cheryl Crow, that uh, you know top '40s. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, there was some stuff that no went underground under stations. The radar. No <laughs> underground stations. It was some stuff that went ar- under the radar. Remember, this is before podcasts and before all that, right? In the '80s and '90s. So, um, for example, David Bowie didn't play. You know, I, like I learned about David Bowie much later. You oh, know, really? uh, and uh, but you you heard uh, the Guess Who? You know, the the from from Winnipeg, you know, out of all places. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, some so it's weird because some things just kind of fell through the cracks, and and other and other that didn't seem as popular actually was quite popular. Uh, other than the obvious, you know, Santana, for example, massive, or, or the Rolling Stones, also massive, right? My uncles were massive, you know, yeah. Rolling Stones fans and uh, Santana fans, and so so I mean, in that sense, there was. But the underground music, it's it's rare. American underground music, you'd have to go to punk rock gigs and, and find the tapes and, and find, yeah. hey, what's this, you know? And Jawbreaker, what's that? You know, and then yeah. you less listen and then you kind of get that, but not from, uh, you know, radio or, or whatnot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what were some of your major influences then, like band-wise? Band-wise, uh, from playing in gigs, see, I, I lived in Malaysia. Uh, I should add here that, that um, before I came to Canada, I did a few years in Kuala Lumpur, in Malaysia. Really? Yeah. 
And so in Malaysia, I lived in the late 90s. So I did early 90s and before in, in Venezuela. And then, um, and then late 90s, I went to finish high school and do some college in, in Malaysia. And during that time, um, we played in another band called the Lime. And in that band, we, we were more immersed into the underground culture, into the, into the punk rock subculture and, and whatnot. So when I left Venezuela in the mid-90s, we were just starting to get into the punk rock and into the scene and stuff. But we were too young. We were 14, you know, so it wasn't quite as... Uh, we weren't ev there every day, you know. We'd have to be a curfew, you know. You have to be home, you know. Hard but to be punk. Hard to be punk when you're 20, 12, <laughs> and, and in time 13. for dinner. That's it, in time for dinner. <laughs> exactly. In Malaysia, we were, you know, late teens, you know mid-teens and so it was easier for us to just hey mom we're gonna go play a gig okay yeah you know have fun mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> more independent yeah exactly exactly so there we were really immersed and um and the scene was fantastic i mean southeast asian punk rock scene is incredible and uh and that's where i learned about all the american punk rock bands fugazi uh, jawbreaker and the earth crisis going into straight edge uh punk rock in the in in the 90s um all those bands that uh, that were hardcore and they had a they had a, a social conscience to them or a world uh, you know a global conscience to them, which was hugely informative. And in a world that is isolated, because I mean Malaysia was still a very stifling you know Muslim state. And I remember the crackdowns on punk rock gigs were like epic, man. Like you'd be in a gig and the cops would be in buses outside arresting children, like 12, 14 year old kids, getting them all in a van. And we would have to, like, jump out the windows in the back so that we wouldn't get in the same, you know, like, get arrested for playing punk rock, you know, for, like, because it'd be, like, they'd be labeling it as satanic. The next morning, you'd see in the newspaper, satanic uh, called kids, you know, listening to metal <laughs> and arrested. And then they would go to their parents and they would tell them, you know, like, your child has been found uh, adoring the devil, you know, and, and here he so is. So it was such a knee-jerk scapegoat, you know, the yeah, you know, Satanist angle, you totally, know. Totally, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Like, totally clueless, right, right in terms of, of like, the major... Um, but we, we had a great scene. There was a really good, supportive, you know, mm. scene... Um, much more open-minded than, than the mainstream was. And, yeah. um, and so, anyway, that was how we were, you know, how we were uh, forged, how we started our, our whole uh, uh, music uh, going to play out most of the gigs that we later now do most of the time. Yeah, yeah. awesome. Funny talking about the you know, crackdown in Malaysia. It really does go to show how powerful culture and music actually are. Because if they didn't feel like these were really sort of turbulent political forces i don't think they would actually care as much we had uh for our second episode we uh we interviewed uh, a punk musician from iran this guy ram who tells a very similar story about the underground scene in iran where rock and roll is literally illegal you can't even show a guitar on tv on the national television because of sort of fear of western influence mm -hmm. and and when the police come find you, very similar story, they're religious zealots. You can't even bribe them. Yes. They're not even corrupt officials. They're angry, yes. young, uh, religious policemen. Yeah, yeah so in the, in the scene over there, they'd have to put, like, mattresses on the walls and have people with walkie-talkies and... Whole, yeah, it's a whole operation for to play a gig, you know. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Which is, which sure makes you really appreciate it once you're there, though. You know, like <laughs> yes. all that effort, right? Yeah, that's yeah. exactly how you described yeah. it. It's yeah. that, yeah. like that yeah. united fear and sort of energy and like music not only as entertainment but as an act of defiance yes. in a very politically totally. oppressed sort of situation so punk 
as a genre is pretty inherently political. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you remember, was it your experience of politics in Venezuela that got you into the punk scene? Or was it the other way around? It, it, was, it was, I think, the other way around. I was already a musician looking for bands to play with. And, uh, and I just wasn't into pop you know, music. And so, so, you know, playing loud, fast music kind of came naturally without necessarily having a, a, a okay, I have a, a message to convey. N necessarily was that, right? Um, eventually, um, the influence of your bandmates and the influence of the world you live in, um, as you get informed of, you know, and you're a young mind thinking about all the injustices that are happening left and right, it's like, wait, no one's doing or saying anything about this obviously you know you you kind of get stirred into action you want to mm -hmm. put this in your lyrics and all of a sudden you have a political edge and all of a sudden you're saying something that is in a way echoing what the world needed or the world is already saying but you're kind of being more uh, um uh, what do you call this? Focused, because it's your music, it's your band, and and, and now you have a channel for yeah, that. You're right? honing in on something important. That's it. Yeah, yeah. combining it. your passion with something deeply, deeply important. That's it. Yeah. That it's already there. It's just that you know many people are trying to put that down. You know, like hide it. You know, like right. uh, the pop mainstream music. Ma pop, yeah. If you <laughs> wanted to go through music, for sure, pop is, or or, or politics. You know, the mainstream politics uh, are going to be suppressing what is really underneath the surface. And punk rock band is is there to say like wait why are you stifling the truth here like, we gotta punch through this through with our with our loud anger in, in our in our music use it as a as a tool for for awareness and for you know spreading the the, 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 the truth to to things yeah. So you talked a little bit about the sort of straight edge scene in the 90s, because a lot of punk rock, especially kind of the most visible sort of punk that you see in Vancouver, a lot of the kind of crust punks mm -hmm. and like the face tattoos. And mm -hmm. it's associated with a lot of like kind of almost nihilistic, heavy yeah. drug yeah. use. Yes. What was the scene like in Malaysia and in Venezuela in that see, sense? Uh, yeah, well, um, there that was the during the height of grunge you know nirvana that very that nihilistic era. yes it's yeah. it, it was it was that much so yes um and uh, there was a there was a big backlash against um the big uh, record labels and and so you know diy punk rock was a was a big thing you know doing things for yourself you 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 had pride and and you could do the things that you could hold in your hands basically um so that was at a at a, at a at a local level, there was also, um, uh, well, in, like you were saying, straight edge. There was a um, there was a very early vegan, very early. These people didn't drink alcohol. They didn't, uh, you know, eat animals. They didn't do any of that. And this is, you know, early '90s, you know, late '80s type of thing. And uh, they were way ahead of their time in that sense of, of awareness in, in the importance of that. And I'm not vegan, and I drink alcohol, but. But um, but I could see the importance in that. You know, I could see that they had a point, and uh, and and uh, and that's just in their straight edge community, which turned out to be quite you know militant and very protective, self protective, almost uh, to their own demise. Um, right. Too exclusive. Too exclusive. Yes, uh, which was uh, common in in punk rock circles. A lot of times, you would be preaching to the choir, and that was it. You know, and then you would just you know that was the end of your growth, basically. Yeah, you um, and the twenty people that show up at your yeah, show. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, and so those who wanted to be a bit more, not, you know, have more notoriety or get out in the mainstream, you know, you'd sell out, and that was it. You know, you yeah. would have a whole different uh, 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 fan base. So. Um, but I mean, in terms of like having your 
core uh, yourself, being honest with uh, yourself, you can carry that until your old age. It doesn't matter. In my opinion, it doesn't matter how you want to distribute this because it's still inside you and it's still something that comes from an honest place. So it doesn't matter if you want to, like, you know, sell a million records or or if you want to just play punk rock bands and then get distribution in in different ways. Uh, What's important is what you believe in and what you are going to be transmitting through your art, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing less punk than selling a million records. <laughs> yeah, I know, and that's what it sounded like. You know, there's nothing less punk than selling a million records. If your if your if your motivation is selling a million records, you know, Ex- uh, exactly, exactly. My but point. but if you want to sell a million records, but you you you're able to hold on to that truth on your art, then heck, me ten million records to you. You yeah. know, I'll buy one too. You know. Yeah. <laughs> So what do you remember about growing up under Puco Chavez? There's such a right. cult of personality around him. Yeah. I'm wondering, what was it like? Did people have like portraits of him up in yeah. their home, like Mao yes. Zedong? Yes. Or, like, what's the situation there? <laughs> well, see, uh, Hugo Chavez came at a point in Venezuelan history when there was already a very big uh, uh, discontent with the, with the um, government that was at the time. Corruption was everywhere, right? And the economy was plummeting, and, and there was... There was a lot of um, poverty and, and, and crime was rising. and Everybody was fed up with that, right? And so Chavez came at a point where people were so tired of it. I say, like, let's just, this is a guy who's got a lot of opinions, you know? Mm-hmm. This is a guy who's a strong man, comes from the army. He attempted a coup by, him, by his own, by himself, failed. He went to jail. And when he got released by the, by the next president, um, uh, he, went, he ran for office. And he swept, right? Like he, like everyone and their pets, you know, voted for him except those who already knew his motivations, those who already knew where that, what his ideologies were. Like myself and a lot of my my peers didn't quite know all the history that came before Chavez was running for power. All we saw was like, there's this guy who's like against the corrupts and against the, you know, and and what what pisses me off the most is like this is a recurring thing that happens every generation or every couple generations, and we forget, you know, or we are not we don't pay enough attention to what just happened in the previous generation, and we make the same damn mistake, you know, and um, and so it's. It, it's kind of frustrating in that same way, but you know, it just came at a certain, ti- a certain time in the economic in the economy in Venezuela where people believed in him, believed in Chavez, mm-hmm. and so you know, he, he he won by a majority. The problem with that was then we did not expect him to just be there for the power, for the sake of power, for the sake of staying there and instill an ideology that is a tired 1950s, you know, dead ideology. Bring it back into modern day era. Uh, with whole new um, rhetoric to back it, right? It's like it's like the church trying to update the Bible every generation to try to bring it up to speed, <laughs> you know? OS. Oh, yeah, now it's relevant, you know? Yeah. <laughs> How do we get YOLO in there? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. absurd, and we yeah. fall for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of reminiscent of what's going on in Brazil right now with Bolsonaro, with mm. the sort of... Um, at least the frustration with corruption yeah. and the kind of people being like, well, anything else, even though I think they're kind of uh, opposite on the political scale. Chavez was more of a kind of communist socialist. Mm-hmm. Bolsonaro sounds like more of an author- authoritarian, conservative, nationalist, yeah. sort of right wing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can see that swinging left and right and left and right. You know, it's a pendulum. The pendulum, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So in 2009, Chavez revo- re- removed term limits 
and uh, concentrated much of the power in the executive branch, which kind of leads into the current situation with uh, Nicolas Maduro. Mm-hmm. Um, how much political freedom do regular f- people feel like they possess in Venezuela? Uh, in terms of um, what it counts for them to vote, um, it's pretty much null. To the point where, you know, my grandpa, who passed away, you know, 20 years ago or so, he was still in the polls voting for the... for Your own for, grandfather. For my own grandfather, who had passed away. His name and ID oh, was still in the polls oh, as voting for the, you know, for Maduro and all these, all the, all the, all these cronies. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of systematic. Now they use a system to keep themselves in power and uh, there's nothing to stop them, you know? Yeah. How do people feel about the police, generally speaking? So there's a military police, and then there's the government police, and then it's, so there's a few bodies that are kind of like clashing in one way or another, right? And every district has their own police as well, their own their own uh, their own army thing. So uh, what what happens here is that um, the the army backs the government, right? Because they're they're supposed to be signed off signed on to defend the government, whoever that is. Um, the problem here is then that um, that because uh, it, the government is keeping them as favored nations, you know, uh, and so they they keep a lot of bribery, they keep a lot of uh, them, them defending them, and they've been losing a lot of their support even in within the army. And so what they do is they they bring uh, external powers to help them stay, remain in power. So Cuba. And Russia and China, China. so, so yeah. they, 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 you know, they, they're mercenaries, or they're paid so that they help us stay in power. Because now we can say that you wear a uniform that says Bolivarian uh, Army, but you're actually not even Venezuelan, right? Um, mm-hmm. So it's one of those another technique, you know, to, to stay on on power. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. it feels like the mask is slipping significantly. Mm-hmm. From what I read, the um, so Nicolas Maduro, mm-hmm. officially speaking, won the election in 2017, mm-hmm. but as you say, was largely considered fraudulent. Mm-hmm. And uh, Juan Guaido um, opposed his presidency um, by saying this was totally not true, mm-hmm. um, and I will represent the uh, the Venezuelan people until such a time as we can call another election. And had some backing from the military. Yeah. It, uh, what's the situation there now? Well, see, um, Guaido was the president of the General Assembly, okay? And the General Assembly, in the, like in the United States, is the, like the Congress, okay? So it's as if, and that's, uh, all the states are represented in the Congress, right? So, and they're all voted by, by general election. So these people are, vo- are voted to be in the Congress and like be standing against the, go- the president if the president says something that is unlawful. So they're, they're the only ones who are able to impeach or to, you know, to... To, to stand up to the president. So what happens is that because this Congress or the National Assembly led by Guaido, because it was his term to be the leader of the assembly that year, by chance, and so uh, and so what happened is that um, uh, Maduro said, oh, you guys are going to oppose me? Well, then I'm going to make my own assembly. I'm going to make my own Congress. And so he did. And so now you got two Congresses, you know, but the one that is still... Uh, have, that has been voted on uh, with Guaido in its in its head is by the constitution by law the one who's supposed to replace uh, the president um, if they if he is deemed uh, uh, um, 
unfit to rule. Mm-hmm. Until um, another election can correct, happen. Correct. Until another election can happen. So it's not like Guaido is calling himself a president. He's himself an interim president until the new elections can happen. But for that to happen, Guaido, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Maduro has to step down first, right? And all his cronies and like all the network of power he's got on the top has to come down so that you're allowing then the people to vote for the next president to come aboard. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, 80% of households don't have access to food. People are dying in hospital because there's no... I read recently... The the, the latest news is that the... the, um, uh, the water supply is totally fucking contaminated, totally contaminated and yeah. uh, they haven't done a uh, official release water health check sort of thing since before Hugo Chavez yes. was elected in, in the 90s. Mm-hmm. It's insane. It's yeah. Insane. It's, it's like, a, a, yeah, it's really, uh, it's really sad that they put only their people from friends, just to their friend, military friends on positions of powers and get the qualified people out, you know, just mm-hmm. so that they can remain in, in a position of control. Yeah. Uh, the detriment of the whole of the whole system is just falling apart. Yeah. So at the moment, Maduro is still holding onto the wheels of power. Mm-hmm. It, effectively, mm-hmm. it's 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 highly disputed, but he's still the one calling the shots. Unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, you know, like the the few shots that he can still call in terms of uh, repression, he can and he does still. You know, um, uh, and now it's kind of gotten out of their hands in a way because it's become a global geopolitical power struggle. Now, as you're talking about. You know what was early in Syria is a is a proxy war. You know you're doing uh, different p- global powers are now putting in their friends into fight on, on the ground, not not claiming responsibility for that thing. And it's a dangerous situation because at, at this point it's like, you know, nobody wants a military intervention because this will end up like Syria. You know, and mm. but at the same time, how the heck do you get rid of a of a, of a dictator that? that is just uh, doing everything in, in illegal in his power to stay in control. Drug sales and, and in bringing in uh, a, a, you know, terrorist factions in the country to maintain himself in, in place. All these things are, you know, it's illegal, but who's going to tell him no, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. He needs the law. He's yeah. the law. Yeah. Yeah. Who polices the police? Yeah, because you look at, like, the Arab Spring, mm-hmm. the only situations where they managed to get rid of their various dictators in, in Egypt and Libya, it was a very violent struggle. And then you look at a case like Syria, mm-hmm. where they felt like maybe they'd have the same result, and it ends up being one of the greatest catastrophes in the modern age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Is that uh, Assad? That's Assad, yeah. Assad, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <clears throat> yeah I know. And, and that, that film that I'm working, that I'm trying to finish, it, it kind of deals with the whole um, uh, Syrian, Syrian situation. Uh, but it's seen from an apolitical standpoint so that we don't take any sides in it. Right, it's uh, just mm-hmm. a character film. That's it. Yeah. It's like, so yeah. that you can see um, what, would, what would happen if you had absolutely no alliances, no allegiances, and you were trying to really bring it down to to the, the core of what it is to be human in such a situation, such a, a turmoil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So from what I remember about, about your film, mm-hmm. it's about a soldier who gets blown off his vehicle mm-hmm. by an IED, mm-hmm. wakes up, everyone else is dead around mm-hmm. him, and he has amnesia, and he can't remember which side he's fighting for. Is yes. that the general gist that's, of it? That's I love the premise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's definitely a good premise. I. Uh, I think we, we, we started with that premise and said, well, where can we go from there? Because the, the other difficulty of it is having a you know, one hour and a half movie of a guy lost in the desert. I mean, how, <laughs> how far can you go, right? right. You'd mm. have to start thinking. Okay, a lot of flashbacks. Yeah, you would have to think, okay, flashbacks to what and what would they contribute? So 
we figured we figured um, the, the the starting point is is him Ahmad having forgotten everything, right? Including his spiritual alignments. You know, he's completely forgotten what it is to be Muslim or or anything really mm. for that matter. And he's forgotten his past, his, his family, and he's forgotten the reason he's in the war in the first place. So as we build the story, we build flashbacks, like you said, to his life in the past, and he finds himself a little bottle of perfume in his soldier uh, costume. Uh, his jacket. Jacket thing, yeah, yes. Yeah. He finds a bottle of perfume, and that brings his memories back. He starts to jog his memories um, on his life before the war as, as uh, he wanted, he had an ambition to become a perfume maker, a perfume maker. Um, and then he starts to remember his mother who'd be uh, against it. Like, come on, you have to get a real job. You're not mm. the perfume maker. Come on, give me a break. <laughs> you studied in chemistry in school. Is that a little bit hey, of you know, your musician so growing so upside? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's that's right. What do you mean, like, making perfumes? You know, you studied, you know, chemistry. You know, you could mm. Hey, somebody's got to make them. I mean, <laughs> that's it, exactly. Mm-hmm. And same the sister, right? The sister, uh, Sophia, is the same thing. It's like, ah, uh, you know. Um, I, I'm here in a stifling uh, a, a society as a woman, you know, as a single woman, and, um, and, and she's, she's pregnant as well. And so she's pregnant without a husband, and uh, the family now is in trouble because the father is absent. We don't know where the father is. And so Ahmad is kind of responsible, but he doesn't want to be responsible. Mm-hmm. He's just a guy who wants to make perfumes. You know, he's like, yeah. Mom, just don't trouble me with these things. And, you know, you guys can figure it out. And, and, and you know, and so Syria is starting to become uh, the situation that it is now. This is back in 2014, back in 2013, uh, before it had started. Mm-hmm. And so the family didn't see it coming. You know, mm-hmm. the family was like, oh, okay, so there are some, you know, revolts here and there, but hey, you know, it's, it's, it's 2013. This is happening everywhere, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. are, the frog in the boiling water. Yes, yeah, exactly. exactly. Are you guys uh, still in post production right now? Yes, you yes, are. Okay, we are. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it, we are now. The edit has been locked, and so we're now doing uh, fundraising to finish off the uh, music, the score, uh, done by uh, Suad Bushnak, who's a, a composer from from Syria. In fact, her her family is from Syria, and she lives now in Toronto. So when I found her, it's like, wow, can you? Please help me make the music yeah. <laughs> for this movie because it's perfect. Well, we'll, uh, we'll definitely make sure to drop a link in our uh, landing page on our website Sweet. to uh, awesome. for the yeah yeah please yeah, do for the fundraiser yeah, yeah yes uh, she we had a fundraiser last night actually at the Laughing Bean at the coffee shop where I work mm-hmm. oh nice yeah. how'd that go it was awesome man yeah. that place was packed oh really <laughs> yeah, that's great I came great. in I, I had to go I had plans yeah, that evening earlier, so yes. I, I came in to give you a drop off a little bit of Thanks, money and brother. I saw you setting up now at least I can do yeah man. no no thank you I appreciate it man like we uh, we made seven hundred and eighty five bucks that night that's nice. awesome two and a half hours of like great had a couple of musicians uh, baristas and had yeah. a, a screening of a few 20 minutes uh, 20 minutes of the movie yeah so do you have like an Indiegogo or a, mm-hmm. a, a Kickstarter or yeah. anything it's a fundraiser okay great you know, so it's fundraiser with a uh, F-U-N-D-R-A-Z-R Ooh. dot com <laughs> yeah. that's it's fun. actually a local company oh nice oh, oh, there, you are. Yeah. there you go that's perfect <laughs> cool. so yeah we'll be sure to leave a link to that on mm-hmm. our landing page at eastmandelsewhere.com and um, yeah so you filmed this it's obviously set in Syria mm-hmm. in the desert in Syria mm-hmm. where did you film that in BC we, we went uh, four hours from Vancouver there's a desert at the um, in Kamloops area mm-hmm. like by Osoyos Osoyos that's right yeah, not yeah. too far from there uh, yeah. Cash Creek Osoyos uh, if you keep going um, so Soyuz, I think, is further s- east, I think, from there. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not as far east, but it's, it's further north, I think, close to Cash Creek and uh, Kamloops. Uh, there's some amazing 
deserts out there, uh, a lot of sagebush and, and, and miles and miles and miles of open land. Uh, First Nations territory from the Sushwap band right. uh, who were instrumental for this to happen. Uh, yeah, I was just going to ask if you yeah. need to get permission. You do. To, yeah, like right. Permit. Do. Yes, our executive producer, uh, one of our two executive producers, uh, Kelly White, she's an old friend and, and, uh, and a filmmaker herself and so she came on board as an exec and that opened tons of doors, I tell you. It's amazing. It, it, like, uh, not only with permits, but also with her community out there, you know? We, they were able to house us and feed us and, and all the crew was out there. And I mean, they took care of us, of yeah. us right? Transportation. It's a really tightly knit community. Um, and uh, it was very, yeah, it was very fortuitous for you to make that connection. I know, yeah, yeah. it's completely amazing. And, and there's a lot of artists, right, in the First Nations world and that they want to, to break through their poverty and to break through their hardships through the arts, you mm -hmm. know, music and, and sculpture and painting. And, um, and so I, I, f I felt that there was a kindred spirit there that we, we, we could team up with, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this film brings a lot of different things together. Um, one thing I'm wondering is how, how does a guy from Venezuela end up making a movie about Syria? <laughs> the Middle East. Yeah, what yeah. inspired this? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, 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 it's interesting. Well, a couple things. Um, when I was, um, how old was I, five or something? Uh, I lived in uh, Lebanon with my mom and dad uh, in Beirut. And oh, wow. we visited Syria a few times. Um, we went to the ruins um, down there, and uh, we visited a few cities, Damascus, among, all, uh, among others. So we you lived got, down there. You've really been all over the place, eh? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We lived in a few places growing up. And uh, Syria was one of them, or mm. rather Lebanon was one of them. So we, we lived in that area, you know, you kind of grow, um, uh, you, warm, you warm up to, to the culture, you understand it better, the language, the people, the culture. And um, and so I had no idea back then, obviously, I was going to make a movie about the Syria one day, but... Five would have been a bit early. Yeah, <laughs> would have been early five. No Spell idea. Damascus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this is like early 80s. I mean, there was war going on in Lebanon where I lived. Yeah. Um, and, but this is a different kind of war, you know? Why were you there? It seems uh, like an interesting yeah, place for yeah, your family to bring you. For sure. My dad's work, right? Uh, My dad's work took, us to, took him to, uh, to Lebanon. What and does, so we uh, lived there for a couple of years, yeah. What, what does he do? He works for the, um, uh, what do you call this, foreign affairs. Okay. So oh, in the government. In the government, yeah. Ah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Early government in the early 82, 83. Right. Interesting. And now yeah. he's a refugee Yeah, himself. now he's a refugee himself. <laughs> out of the, yeah, yeah. Wow, there's sure. something there. It's interesting because, um, you know, when Chavez came to power, he said, okay, everybody that was from the previous government, you're out of a job. I don't care if you are uh, a not clerk. a clerk or, a, or right. if you are uh, not in retirement age. Now you're all forcibly retired. Yeah. You can keep coming to the office, but we won't pay you a dime. And, thanks. Uh, you know, <laughs> thank you very much. And, you know, you can clock in and clock out, but, uh, you know, you're pretty much done. So yeah. that's what happened to my dad, and that's what happened to a lot of other people that, that had come from previous governments. Um, mm. So he was really starting from scratch, right? Um, mm. He had a plan. Anyhow, back to the, the, the yes, serious yes, thing. Yes. I, um, that was a five. And then here in Vancouver, when I moved here, um, I went to film school at Langara for about eight months. I was already doing animation. I did cartooning as a, as a career. And uh, I got tired of that, got into film. And so when I did those eight months, I met Cheyenne Bayat, who's a good friend of mine now, and he's an actor and a writer. And he is uh, Iranian. 
Iranian-American. And so it turns out that he is passionate about Middle East politics, passionate about all the situation and geopolitics that's happening over there. And slowly with him and I, we found this, this common interest in, in war and, and the human, the, the human uh, um, uh, nature, you know, and how it, when it's faced under, the, under those situations, uh, you know, refugee situations, uh, war, and, uh, you know, how that affects us and how we re respond to those things. And so between Cheyenne and I, we started putting our heads together, hey, we should do something about this. And so Syria, the Syrian war what was going on, we, we, we started in 2007. So that was way before the Syrian uh, had exploded, Syria had exploded. Uh, but when it finally, when 2012 came around, 2014, 2015, we was like, wow, okay, I mean, this is really topical. This is something that we're, we're, we're passionate about. So we started to, 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 to roll these ideas into a screenplay. And then, um, uh, well, I don't know if you've interviewed filmmakers, but when you, when, you do, when you do a feature film, it's kind of like your trial by fire, right? Your first feature film is kind of like your first album in a right. band, right? <coughs> Where, yes. Uh, you've, you've interviewed well, musicians even. You know, yeah, when they yeah, do their absolutely. first album, it's kind of yeah. like the same journey. Um, they, they don't have the money. Uh, you know, they don't have a backing from money with people with money or a label or anyone to fund their album. Yeah, if you've um, never done anything, can't point to anything, then, you know, who's going who's gonna to fund you? Right? That's yeah. exactly it. Yeah. So, you, know, you, you know, who are you? you know, yeah. and, and you've done a few, like, short films before, and uh, you sent me the links to some of them, but... This 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 new movie looks like very oh, I, very I ambitious. Uh, I don't in think we mentioned way. the name for it yet. Right, it's Roads yeah. of Ithria. Roads of Ithria. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Roads of Ithria. And Ithria, you know, the people tell me, why don't you call it just Roads of Damascus or something easier to remember? <laughs> and I was like, well, yes, but no. You know, I think it's it's good to keep it into something that we know that it's DIY and made locally, and and you know, it has has a lot of heart to it. You know, mm -hmm. and Ithria is a small town in in Syria. And um, so, so we didn't think in the, we didn't put our like you know big hotshot marketing hats on. We, that that was not <laughs> part of the equation here. You know, gotcha. we wanted to do something that was honest to us. And Ithria um, turns out that is a perfect analogy for what the story is about. Ithria is kind of like at the center of the country where all these roads go to different right. factions, and it's perfect because this character is kind of like in this you know, quandary on like where am I going now? You know, I have no recollection of what side I'm gonna go. So rows off Ethria, not ro not rows to Ethria, but off Ethria, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but that worked in our. No, I think that's perfect. Cool. That's man. perfect. Yeah. yeah. So you're gonna are you gonna try and get it in in VIF and TIFF, yeah. all the Vancouver Toronto International yeah, Film Festivals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds perfect for that kind of audience. Thanks, man. Thanks. I mean, yeah, we worked over four and a half years on it now. You know, fundraising and shooting a little bit here, fundraising again, shooting a bit more. So finally, after four and a half years, we're in post. Uh, like I, I was mentioning, Suad doing uh, the, the the score. Um, uh, we have Todd doing uh, the the sound design. Uh, a, a team with Todd and Matt, who's been with us doing sound. Uh, anyway, they're, they're doing all the foley and all the uh, in summer as well. We're doing sound. Uh, that's massive work. It takes a few months just to get you know all the sounds in the movie um, and coloring as well. Right, and then there's also um, um, visual effects. That Glue Studios, uh, uh, my buddy Paul Lowy owns a, a visual effects studio in town, 
and they've worked with me for years and they say Javier should go for it man and you know if you can <laughs> you can raise some money send it our way you know and um, so they're helping but me but you to gotta have the money yeah exactly <laughs> so I, you know I'm busting my ass here trying to get raise some money uh, to, to get these guys to pay my friends basically like hey yeah. man I know I can pay you a bit now you know it's not a lot but it's something and then uh, and then that hopefully gets the feature made feature finished uh, distributed and then that'll enable you to find sources of money for the next movies right which mm -hmm. is Kind of like a, a, a snowball effect, you know. You're gonna keep you growing. Fund the next venture. That's mm -hmm. it, exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. an album. I mean, you yeah. know, once your first one is out, if if it's if it meets some moderate success, you know, you can have something to leverage for negotiations later. They say, hey, I made a first album, has a decent, uh, did performed well. Um, help me make the next one in a better better quality. You mm -hmm. know? Yeah. So when we had our first initial meeting, you mentioned that you actually went to Germany to a Syrian refugee camp. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Was yes. that before or after you decided to, I guess it would have been uh, after since you, you're the first seats for the movie started before the refugee crisis. But what was that experience like for you? Uh, good. I, I mean, I'm amazing. It's incredible. I, I, this was during the research process for the writing of Rose of Ethria. So um, while Cheyenne and I were thinking about plot and, and characters and all that, part of me was saying, well, I need to talk to, you know, refugees. I need to talk to the people that are going through what we're going to write about, right? And so, again, at the Laughing Bean, where I work, the coffee shop, um, uh, this uh, Syrian gentleman um, came in and said, hey, I, you know, I, I have friends that are refugees in Germany. We went to school and whatnot. And said, uh, here's their phone number. Here's their email. And so I immediately emailed my friends. I, I emailed them. They're my friends now, but back then I didn't know them. It was just an email. Um, hey, so, you know, making this movie. I know Remy here in Vancouver. Uh, can I stop by? Um, and they say, sure, come stay in our place. You know, we'll take care of you. Um, and, uh, and so... I left to Europe on a, it was a week trip. I was going to Cannes that year, uh, a short film I made before, got into the Cannes Festival in the, in the film corner. So we, I was gonna go to Cannes anyway, and I said, I'm gonna squeeze this Germ Germany trip before I go to the Cannes Festival. And so I, I did that, I got trains, I got lost all over Europe because I had no idea what I was doing, just <laughs> buy a ticket and get on a train. It's in that direction, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing it. I have to learn 12 different languages. Yes, yeah. I swear. Yeah. We ended up arriving in there. Anyway, so, so got to um, um, do Alzai Worms, which is the name of this little tiny uh, I've been to Worms. You went to Worms? I went to Worms. What? Uh, well, it, I know. <laughs> I, no one's been to Worms. Wow. Well, uh, what Germany is doing is amazing. I mean... It, it's never enough help for the refugees. Obviously, the refugees mm. coming out of Syria are so many that, you know, not one single country can handle the whole thing. Of course. But what Germany did was very interesting because they opened their doors for immigration to come in from Syria. Worms is a tiny, beautiful little ancient town, you know? Mm. It's, it's, as, it's as German as, uh, you know, like, like the, the Hansel and Gretel stories, you know? Right. <laughs> it's a beautiful little thing. And now there's a very large population of Syrian refugees. Now, what Germany did, which is really smart, is that they bring they first opened the doors to let German uh, to let uh, Syrian people come in, and then they uh, they 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 put them in camps to teach them German and the German culture for a year. So you do nothing but eat, sleep, and learn German. Mm -hmm. And after that year, you learn the culture in German. You get put into these little towns all distributed. Over yes, as a part of the population. That's it. Yeah. And so now. 
they're in the small towns and it's kind of like they graduated yeah, you know like a, mm-hmm. assimilation programs that's it a yeah. very very interesting assimilation which is completely conscious right like they they know what they're doing and so Germans do the, always they, do they do and and so do the refugees they're like thank you for taking us in we will learn your language we'll learn how to get a job here uh, and a lot of these these refugees are are you know university graduates they're professionals for many years they're mm-hmm. scientists and you know you know, very complete people, you know? It's mm. just that they've been displaced. And so Germany has opened the door for them to inject into the economy. See, because Germany is an aging population. They're not... They're not um, same with Canada. Same with Canada, yes. Mm. The, the elders are, are growing in numbers. The young are not, are not as many. And so Germany said, we've got to do something about this. We've got to inject a new energy into our economy. And so um, that's... That's their plan. It's a very interesting many years of uh, you know of planning for that for sure, um, and with backlashes, of course, it's going to have backlashes for immigration and all that. But it's unavoidable. It's like unavoidable <laughs> in a way, yeah. but but it's also interesting that they want to use it as as a way to grow, which is a positive thing, you know. Mm. Um, anyhow, when I was there in 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 Worms, I interviewed about a dozen families of Syrian refugees, and and uh, and and some of them spoke English, some of them, most of them did not. So I had an interpreter. I don't speak Arabic. So it was an interpreter. I have the, the interviews, which I intend to use at some point because uh, I've, I've brought my DSLR. I filmed the interviews. I hope to put them together into a documentary at some point. But the answers and their experiences from all ages, you know, women, men, young, old, uh, they all told me their experience moving into a new country, leaving things behind, what they had lost, um, their experience with religion, their experience with living in a city that is not Muslim, right? Coming from a completely, you know, born and raised in a Muslim society and community, you know, mm-hmm. where you have your your uh, um, your your chance to come to pray, you know, five times a day. Uh, you don't get that, right? You you don't you get that disconnection from your culture, you know. And so all those things kind of implement. Like I, I brought them back to Vancouver with me, and I sat with Cheyenne. It's like, okay, let's. What are we gonna, you know, take from this, right? Uh, how, what are we gonna write? Because we can't write everything, you know. We gotta mm-hmm. pick and choose. Um, so we we did the best we could in 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 kind of putting all these experiences into the lead character Ahmad, right? And he as he gets he gets kidnapped in the desert or or nothing ever, but like he gets at gunpoint revived by this Arab, you know, a, a soldier man who's a brute and like, okay, you're gonna go back to the war with me, great. And at first it seems like he's the way out. Okay, I'm gonna go back to the war. But as, as it progresses, this brute seems like completely, you know, like into killing. And like Ahmad is like, uh, yeah, you know, I don't know if <laughs> this, wanna, doesn't, this doesn't feel good. <laughs> this doesn't feel good anymore, you know. And so and this and this man is kind of telling him how to how to pray again, how to, you know, how to how to uh, pray the five times a day. And but Ahmad is already disconnected from the whole thing. Right. The spiritual side of him is disconnected from what he was taught to him growing up. Um, and then we have a parallel of Ahmad in Vancouver as a refugee. And we show him in Vancouver going to a church, kind of curious. It's like, hmm, is this the spirituality I need to go? And goes to a church in East Van, just a block from the Laughing Bean as well. <laughs> the, 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 uh, Our Lady of Sorrows. Our Lady of Sorrows, yeah. yes, which yeah. were great. They let us 
go in there and shoot a scene of the mm-hmm. movie with him alone in the church. It's a very visually striking it's, church. There's some is. humble churches in Vancouver. Past it quite a, like quite a few times. It, it is because it's, I yeah. think so. Yeah, because I think it's Catholic, so they have the the the, the Christ on the on the. It's on very the, dramatic. The, it's very yes. dramatic, <laughs> man. And so a lot of statues. Exactly. So imagine <laughs> this Syrian man walking in with absolutely no relationships, coming into this church by himself, and it's empty except one person or two. And, you know, it's imposing. And so I, I, I put this in parallel with his prayer in the desert with this brute of a man teaching him how to, you know, be back, uh, be a Muslim again. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Yeah. that we wanted to bring it from, yeah, from that aspect of his uh, forgetfulness or, or he forgets that side of him. Yeah. Talking about your experience with the refugees, that must have been quite cathartic being a refugee yourself. Mm-hmm. Do you see any parallels between Syria and Venezuela? Oh, yeah. Tons, and it, did that in, how did that uh, inform your film? Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, and the, part of the reason I wanted to make this film was because of the whole displacement element of it and how that is more and more common this day and age. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and bound to get more common, you know, especially it. with, uh, you know, global warming and everything. We have a lot it. of eco driven um, displacement yeah, displacement yeah, exactly 100% exactly and now it's exactly what's going to happen I mean it's not only political anymore it's not only like you know fossil fuel driven thing now you know it's 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 more uh, of the of the world just not letting people live in a place you know it, the, the water rising um, uh, all, all these elements that are going to contribute to global displacement so mm-hmm. so it's it's in a way now is the time to start talking about these things more out in the open and making movies and writing songs and like really getting art to reflect what's going on so that the mainstream can understand like okay so this is coming whether we like it or not yeah. you know and and we better be prepared for it and let's, let's see experiment now that it's an early stage into what can happen so that when it does happen we are better prepared mm-hmm. you know yeah. do all the that's things it. they wouldn't let you do in Malaysia that's it pretty yeah. much yes that was the time yeah <laughs> Yeah, well, I think that's a perfect place to end it. Um, so where can people follow you? Cool, man. I mean, in social media all over the place, I, I have my website, javierbadillo.com. And then from there, I have links to my Instagram and, and to the movie as well, to the fundraiser page. So you can start from, from there. You know, if, if javierbadillo.com is easy enough to... to well, I, I, easy for a Spanish speaker here. I am saying, how do you spell Badijo? Yeah. Okay, so. I, I will be sure to leave a link to that Thanks, on, on, on the page of this episode at eastvandelsewhere.com. Um, any Caracas gigs coming up? Mm-hmm. Anything we have scheduled? Uh, one gig with Caracas coming up at the uh, Roberts Creek. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah oh, there you coast. Go. <laughs> that should be fun, man. It's at the Halloween uh, party they got at the Legion. Mm. Out in nice. Roberts Creek on the 26th of uh, of this month of October. Yeah, it's yeah. gorgeous up there. Yeah, holy! Mm. I, I think I've been with her once years ago. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they have a giant mandala in, in, on the on the by the beachfront. And oh it's, wow! Um, constructed by the neighbors or by the people that live in Roberts Creek, and it's this massive monument thing. And huh. anyways, it's a very pretty pretty location. So cool. I want to go with the band, stay overnight. You know, they've been really kind at the Legion. Say, hey, stay over at our place. You know, you can crash over. Yeah. <laughs> so we're gonna do that. Do you have a costume? <laughs> yes, I got ourselves a costume. You know, it, it, it's, it's funny because, I mean, we want to play something that we either are all different costumes or it's one costume for all, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. For, yeah. a, for a band to look like a band or, or what? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so I just found some uh, some tropical birds that you can wear as a hat. And <laughs> 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 yeah, some skirts that we just 
broken, we can wear as capes. They're like uh, this uh, frilly uh, orange, uh, transparent, right. translucent kind of skirt. And I have my sequence uh, jacket, you know, nice. <laughs> throwbacks. Nice. Uh, it's fun. Yeah. Very DIY. Yeah, very seems, DIY. Seems to be the story of your life. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> man. Yeah. Yes, do it yourself, man. I think it's the best way to do it. Yeah. Thank you, Javier. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you, you, guys. Excellent. Awesome. Have a good night. <laughs> you guys are Cheers. awesome. Thank you so much for having me in your yeah, show. Man. Yes. All right, folks. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Javier. And if you did, please like and review anywhere that you can. You know, drop us those golden stars. Yes. If you want to reach out to the show, you can write us an email at eastfandelsewhere at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at eastfandelsewhere. You can find Cody on SoundCloud as Bitcrack. And you can find us at our home on the web, eastfandelsewhere.com. We're going to play you out today with another song off of Caracas's album, Bring On The Playtime. This is Pond of Dreams. Hope you enjoy it. See you next month. Another swing of me. This is another brick left on the wall. I wanna swim.